and welcome to the working that is Chrononaut Chronicle. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. The show is, of course, sponsored by mysticalwares.com, which is Derek Condit's metaphysical supply shop located in Mount Vernon, Washington. Uh, so what is it exactly that we do here on Chrononaut Chronicles? Well, since I called it a working, this is a this is a spell of sorts. It is a working a work in progress, right? So there's four steps to 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 this particular spell, and these are the four show segments. So we have the the almanac, the gratitude, the silver, and the sword segment. So very very quickly, uh, the the goals behind each of these segments is uh, the first one. The almanac is simply awareness. This is meant to expand our uh, or call our attention or awareness to uh, upcoming uh, astrological uh, alignments with with the planets and, and looking out for solstices and, and equinoxes and whatnot and just to to be aware of the potential uh, upcoming energies in the week that are available for us to work with and capitalize on if we want to do that and the second step of of the of the show of the working is the gratitude section and this is simply about love this is about intent intention and um, and uh, the, the point is to stretch this into infinity, uh, essentially. So it's more than just a weekly exercise. The goal here is to kind of live in a perpetual state of gratitude. So this is just a nice little exercise uh, that we do on the show to, to put in that uh, key ingredient of, of love. And the, the third step is the silver segment. And this is more about expansion and learning something new. And so we do take a look at headlines on, on this, in this section, uh, oftentimes, and uh, we often look for uh, silver linings in, in not only the, the stories that we cover themselves, but uh, in, I think the, the headlines uh, in general, because I, I try not to pick out things that everybody else is talking about, right? So this is where we, uh, we learn and expand. And the last step is the sword segment. And this really deals in matters involving spirit, dimensions, metaphysics, timelines, consciousness, and uh, transformation, alchemy. Uh, moving from a, a victim mentality, if we find ourselves in that, in that mindset, into a hero mindset, right? How to use our thoughts effectively and efficiently and, and intentionally, right? How, we, how can we navigate more efficiently and, and towards our fulfillment, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of, of our our desires, right? So those are the four steps for show segments. So to start out with uh, the almanac, let's see, uh, not a whole lot happening planetarily. Uh, tomorrow is All Hallows Eve. Uh, Wednesday is All Saints Day. Thursday is All Souls Day. So some uh, some fairly important feast days uh, coming up. And then uh, Saturday, actually, we do have some Saturn action on Saturday. Saturn goes uh, direct, stations direct, and has been actually in retrograde since June 17th. So it's been it's been a few months, right? And it'll be uh, starting to move through Pisces on Saturday. And uh, Sunday, not so much a planetary thing, but time-related nonetheless. It is the uh, daylight savings time switch back. The falling, falling backwards. So, time to uh, mess with our clocks again, because that's a 
just makes sense and is a normal way to uh, regulate your your life, right? Just mess up your circadian rhythm twice a year. Sounds like a great idea. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, time for the gratitude segment, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how they uh, keep control of you. Don't allow you to uh, be involved in the cycles. Yeah. And it's dramatic. Like, there's an increase in heart attacks right after time changes. Yeah, there's all sorts of weird weird correlations that happen because of this changeover. What, you want to go to sleep at the same time with the sun at the same point in the sky? No. Light bulbs. LEDs. And blue lights. I, I really wanted to uh, start wearing my uh, purple uh, glasses in the morning. Adam gave me some purple uh, color light therapy glasses to uh, to start blocking out all the LED because I stare at computer screens all day, right, for my for my day job. So right when I when I wake up, punch in, bam, right, you know, blue light LED. But I'm gonna start wearing color therapy glasses, I think. But that is not my gratitude. Um, I'll get mine out of the way real quickly so we can hear from our two other chrononauts tonight. Um, recently, I have been dealing with a bit of gum pain, gum issues. There was a uh, a pretty exciting uh, dental uh, adventure I had doing 13 questions. So this is the same area, if anybody remembers that. Uh, but I found a product called Tooth Terrain by Dr. Jerk, uh, by Dr. Dirk Jacobson. And uh, uh, you can pi- uh, purchase it on Clive DeCarl's website. That's where I got it anyway. But uh, it is a, a tooth or a gum serum. I'm sorry, it's a gum serum. A, I believe it is a, a probiotic. It does work with your microbiome. But I was experiencing some, experiencing some mild, uh, achy gum problem, and uh, immediately the the first time after after taking it, you take uh, it's just six drops. Uh, it comes in a little tiny bottle with a pipette, and you just put six drops in your mouth, swish it around, and swallow it, and pretty immediate. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So um, probably uh, not going to have the same effect for everybody, but I had luck with it. Kept me from going back to the dentist, which which I'm thankful for, and I'm able to uh, you know diagnose and address the problem myself. So so that is my gratitude finding this wonderful uh, tooth terrain serum. And the, the terrain part is based off of the terrain theory of, of medicine and how the body works as opposed to the germ theory. So that's a, just a side note there. But uh, enough of me talking. Uh, thank you, uh, both of you guys. We just lost Ben, but he said that might happen. But uh, Adam, Adam, Adam is here. We know that. Uh, thanks for being here, Adam. And uh, what, uh, what's been going on? What are you grateful for? Adam is muted. Well, I was talking. I was uh, going to praise technology, but I got silenced by technology. User characters, not technology. Yeah, um, I am very thankful for the ability to get things. I've probably mentioned how much I love eBay in the past, but I was able to reunite myself with one of my greatest childhood experiences. There was a product called, I guess they called it the Joker Ball. And in the early days of electronic talking toys, it was just a ball 
and you would push it and the joker would laugh and i had it burned into my brain what it sounded like and i was able to reacquire one and for that i am thankful that uh just the technology exists to do that my god i never would have found it in a pawn shop or a garage sale diamond in the rough i remember you uh did you just play it i sure did oh, i can't do it again i couldn't hear it very well yeah it was really kind of came through um okay try this now yeah it was, it was a little better just a short little laugh. It's probably getting squashed by the uh, the Zoom algorithms. By technology. <clears throat> squashed by technology. It's a good band name. Squashed by technology. Then you find out the guy's wife's name is technology. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> um, let's see. I guess that'll do it for the gratitude segment this show moving on to the silver segments i do have several headlines picked out oh by the way uh usually mention what we're doing for the the uh, sword segment during the little synopsis at the beginning but we're going to be looking from reading from uh, neville goddard again uh out of his book called the power of awareness and from the chapter entitled Consciousness. So that'll be that'll be after the silver segment. But here we go. The first headline that I wanted to go over is well, I've got I didn't put these in any order and I've got stuff in here from last week too, but this is actually from last week and I wanted to cover it because it has to do with forming new habits, new and healthy habits. And when talking about uh, transformation, which is part of the sword segment, uh, forming new habits is pretty, pretty important when you're trying to change things and, and manifest things, right? So... I thought that this would be a good place to start. And this is from inverse.com. And it is called How to Break Bad Habits in Three Steps, According to Science. And the, the other reason why I liked this article before we get into it is because it really uh, takes, it takes some of the load off of your shoulders. At least it did with mine, right? Because it's not, it turns out that, uh, you know, our environment has a uh, a lot to do with what habits we form right and a lot of the times we don't have control over our environment as at least as not as much as we would like to anyway and uh because of this i think that it's an important reminder to take it easy on ourselves right and i love doing that. i love reminding myself to be kind to myself because we are our own greatest critics right so uh instead of the article is it starts out, as human beings steeped in philosophies of free will, we like to think we have total control over our actions. If someone is always late to meetings, we ascribe their tardiness to laziness or poor time management. If someone struggles to lose weight, we often think, why can't they just skip dessert and work out? 
Wendy Wood is a social psychologist at the University of Southern California who has studied human behavior, habits, and decision-making for more than 30 years. She is the author of the book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. We tend to think it's all us, Wood tells Inverse. It's all our own agency and self-control that will push us in the right direction or make us fail. But that's just not true. We actually have far less control over our behavior than we like to think. That's because about 43% of our daily actions are habitual, conducted on autopilot, without much conscious thought or effort. We have a sense we are in charge of everything and we take responsibility for everything we do. And that's fine, but performance reflects habits, not desires and goals. The implication shouldn't be changing behavior is as easy as making a decision to do something different, she says. That decision should involve changing our environment, making the behavior rewarding, and figuring out how to repeat it on a regular basis so that, so that it becomes automatic. In order to make or break habits that stick, hijacking the environment is much more effective in attempting to change than, than attempting to will that change into being. Rethinking behavior, I'm sorry, rethinking behavior change from this perspective can be liberating. If you're not able to do something, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Sometimes we end up feeling like failures when we're tired or when We've tried yet again to go on a diet and we're not successful. But it's not so much about you, it's about the environment that you're in and how you control it. Habit memory. Habits are a learning system that we don't have conscious awareness or access to. They're relatively slow to form or break and habit memory tends to last for years. We develop habits as we repeatedly do the same thing in a given context and get some reward for it. Because of the reward, we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. Think about standing at the bathroom sink and brushing your teeth or brewing coffee in the morning without a second thought. This allows us to multitask, and that, efficient, that efficiency is what also makes habits so hard to break. They are the first thing that comes to mind, even when you don't want them to. But unfortunately, habits that may have benefited you in the past don't necessarily benefit you today. Habits are sort of a shortcut based on past learning about what to do, but they're not necessarily the right thing to do. They were the right thing in the past, but that is the challenge with habits. make it or break it. Typically, if we want to build a new habit, such as drinking a glass of water when we wake up or hitting the gym after work, we engage in goal setting. We simply plan to execute the action and then we try to follow through. Willpower is actually not a very reliable system because as soon as things start to get difficult, we talk ourselves out of the commitment we made. That's because the very act of inhibiting a desire makes the desire 
loom really large in our minds and sometimes consumes us. We think if we're motivated enough and have enough self-control, we'll follow through without realizing that the circumstances around us, the context that we're living in, have a huge impact on how easy something is and how often we can repeat it. Instead of changing your thinking, Wood says, change your environment. The best way to break an unwanted habit is to change the context so that you're not in a situation that activates thoughts or the response that you, that you have given in the past. This also means that periods of flux, a new move, a new job, or even the pandemic, are vital opportunities to build new habits and try something new. Woods, three steps to form new habits. Actually, the, the little pandemic that was my my edition, uh, not part of Inverse.com's uh, article here. But uh, lastly, uh, three steps to form new habits. Number one is ease up. If something's too difficult, simply don't do it. Wood says, depending on your goal, fill your pantry with healthy snacks, turn off your social media notifications, or sign up for a gym near your office. Make the choice to do better easier. Number two, make it enjoyable. If you're not going to repeat a behavior, oh, you're not going to repeat a behavior that you don't enjoy, and you're not going to form a habit for something that you just hate. So even if you've chosen an unappealing habit, find a way to make it fun. Maybe that means stopping by a favorite smoothie bar after a morning run, or watching trash TV while you complete a dreaded task. Number on average, based on the research, it takes about 66 days to make a simple health change. The more complex behavior, the longer it might take. Generally, two months is a good ballpark estimate for the average person to form or break a habit. And if you miss a day, no need to panic. Habit memory takes a long time to form. But luckily, a single skip doesn't wipe away what's been built up in the past. And that is that's the article about forming habits. Um, some things that, uh, that jumped out at me, first of all, when I read this, I asked my wife what her opinion was because I was still in the, the perspective that uh, that you can just willpower through it, right? And that is, uh, as we can see here, not really scientifically viable. So there was a little bit of a ego check for me. But uh, then again, looking back at my own experience, and making a move recently, and the uh, just amount of flux, to use the word in the in the article, I, I was able to take advantage of that and form better new you know new better habits. So, well, pe people are patterns. People are habits. People do things very specifically in certain ways, whether you realize it or not. You're literally programmed like a computer. When I did interrogations, you would 
ask questions in a certain order, looking for how a person reacts, going back very, very formulaic until you click on a point. You're like, ah, I see that light went off that switch, you know, that little indicator. And I'm going to push this next button and you do that in the right order. And you can get people to completely open up to you. And the same thing goes with, with uh, habits and patterns. Like um, you may think that they're organic and be willpowered through, but, but they are deeply programmed by, by the social environment around us. Oh yeah. I wasn't even thinking, I mean, environment, absolutely. The, the social aspect has to come into play, but man, that that's uh, just opens up a whole other type of perspective. I was just thinking from my own, my own yeah, bubble. Um, I recommend yeah. anybody out there that really is interested in just exploring some aspect, like deep aspect of psychology to understand people to sign yourself up for a Wicklander class. Um, it was a two-day course that I took as part of my job, and it completely changed my life. Because once you start realizing that in other people, that you can have somebody that you're going to sit down with that knows they've done something, that if they tell you about it, they're going to go to jail, and their life will be destroyed. I'm going to ask you questions in a certain order, look for you know, your reaction, and do things formulaically, and at the end... You're going to be remorseful. You're going to tell me everything willingly. And then you're going to cry and be sad about it afterwards. Like when you can, that starts happening to you, you go, oh my God, like people are, we, we don't think that we're this uh, computer-like, but we are absolutely, we're all running the exact same operating system. And it's the same reason like grifters will get on top of people for, uh, um, uh, oh, what do they call it? It's like a, when somebody sees your loved ones, cold readings, you know, um, you're speaking and looking for people's reactions and they're giving you tons and tons and tons of information that they just don't even realize. And then you can utilize that against somebody to appear to be a magician. Speaking of being a magician and wizard tricks, I, I, bought, I, there, I was, uh, I posted a short little clip to our Instagram feed a while ago of the clip from another podcast. I can't remember the name right now. There was a good credit, but they were interviewing a, a CSA spy, somebody that was a former spy, right? And they were saying that one of the, the number one, the question was, what is the, the, the number one uh, spy trick that anybody can implement in, in their, you know, just anybody can do it currently without any, special clearances or badges and and the the guy the, the former spy essentially said that it is imagining yourself in the shoes of the person that you're spying on right it is the, the change of perspective yep yeah i will tie this direct to interrogation not that it's a direct but because i find it interesting that they have a correlation um when you want somebody to tell you the truth you have to absolutely, truly sympathize with them. You have to see things from their side. You have to understand them. You have to be empathetic and to make it believable, you have to do it too. And I think there has a lot to do with like mirror neurons and things like that that can also have a um, uh, an added effect. But yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's, it's huge. 
I love seeing that connection. And to uh, take this on in another direction of of speaking in terms of controlling our our environment and the repeating how how easily it can be to fall into past patterns of behavior in the same surroundings. I once had a piece of advice given to me uh, with if I was going to take magic mushrooms uh, to not do it in a environment in which you are necessarily you know 100 percent familiar with like like your home because there's there's energies there that are that are conducive to you know falling into past habits and if you're trying to work through something or make a change right or you know accomplish you know a connection right then doing it outside of everyday comfort zones will make it a more efficacious will be you know better it'll, it'll be a you know, better higher they say that uh with ayahuasca that oh. it has a very good success rate but that a lot of it is determinant upon the person removing themselves from the environment that they were originally in and it makes so much sense because uh if you put rats in cages uh they did this experiment where you know they had a group of rats that were you know allowed access to you know females and have play and wheels and toys varieties of food you know um just be able to do lots of good things and then they gave them access to water and water laced with cocaine the happy rats didn't go to or very infrequently went and used the cocaine the rats that were in a depressing cage just you know in the cage on their own you know just standard rat stuff would use the drugs and it to me that spoke volumes about yeah of course the war on drugs has been lost because you're not focusing on the problem it's the environment yeah yeah speaking of environment and tying it back to the, the terrain model of our of health right the body terrain and, and tooth serum that i mentioned you you have something here a uh, product that you've used before. oh yeah so i wanted to add on to this um so you're using a probiotic product there's a product and actually i should probably click on the link shouldn't i um it's available everywhere it's super super old it's called uh toothache medication uh and it's made by red cross it comes in a little brown bottle um it has uh eugenol in it i think i'm enunciating that right uh, but essentially, it's a derivative of clove. So it has two ingredients, sesame seed oil and uh, this derivative of clove, the essential oil. And it is incredibly potent for relieving oral pain. I highly recommend it. Um, it's very good, super natural. Uh, you can buy it at pretty much, you know, super any natural. Walgreens. Huh? Supernatural? Like... Yes, supernatural. I didn't even think about that. Yes. And uh, it comes with two brothers who will attack demons for you. And, uh, oh, and see, I've also used it not just for oral, but it's also used in not this specific product, although I used it for this. Clove oil is used for euthanizing fish, either that or eugenol. Um, it has a analgesic effect and it, it puts their respiratory system to sleep and they stop breathing. So um, I was very compassionate for a goldfish that I had who became ill. And it, it says this particular product is cotton pellets. So these are. You, oh, you know what? That's the link. They they also used to sell it in just like um a liquid, a liquid okay. form. Okay. Okay. But uh, yeah, cloves. That's interesting. Um, 
I just got off a big parasite cleanse. I didn't, I didn't take cloves specifically, but uh, uh, that it, I did learn that cloves are something that parasites do not enjoy. Do you eat a lot of spicy food? I, I mean, I, uh, man, I, I put, I'll put hot sauce on my eggs if I have eggs. Um, not, it's not a big part of my diet, but I did start taking cayenne pepper capsules. Okay, good, awesome. And I say that because from a parasitic standpoint, there's a reason why you think of the equator as having spicy foods, and that's because it is a natural anti-parasitic to have in your system. So there's a reason you would douse your food with, you know, from a health aspect when you're in the equator, which is where you usually get parasites from. Yeah, yeah. And that makes you uh, feel cooler, too. Uh, yes. And um, so you can also have euphoric effects from extreme like ghost pepper or higher type experiences. And, um, you know, when you buy pain patches, you know, they often have, oh, what do they call it? Is it saying cortisol? It's not the right word. Capsaicin, um, which is a derivative of peppers, which is used for that. And I find it incredibly useful. Uh, sometimes when I get bad headaches or migraines, I will crave hot food. And the interesting thing is I don't feel the heat, but I get a, a pain relieving um, from, from the cayenne. That's what I use. Huh. Well, cloves, because parasites hate them, we have been feeding them to the dog in lieu of any uh, pesticide application. I've got another tip for you too, Bill. Diatomaceous earth. You can buy it. You probably have it. Have you used it before? Yes. Yeah, we've used it. Um, you can feed. You can put that into your dog food. Obviously, I'm not a vet, so don't take my recommendation. You know, ask Chat GPT. <laughs> uh, preferably a vet. Um, but they use it in uh, the cattle industry for this because uh, it's also what they put in toothpaste because it's made of little diatoms that have hard carapaces that are really, really sharp. So it destroys. Um, parasites it can just like shred the outside and your your intestinal system and everything is is isn't going to be damaged by it um i've also used it on my cats before to get rid of fleas yeah. uh, it's good for getting rid of bugs because the same thing it gets caught up in their joints and then it just it shreds them or like on fleas it abrades the wax and then they dehydrate yeah i think that that might be how clove works too if you ingest it, it it destroys the parasite mechanically as opposed to if uh, I, I was taking a bunch of a bunch of stuff but wormwood was a big a big one and that i believe whatever the the, the concoction of plethora of, of of herbs i was taking it changed the environment of my my biome to make it unpleasant for mm -hmm. The parasites and they, they now have you ever considered that you might actually want to get parasites um no have you heard of people getting hookworms on purpose no i have not i, I can't there was that. a guy i'm sure he's not doing it now um although who knows he was selling hookworms online um certain people that have autoimmune disorders when they get parasites in their system, their autoimmune systems disappear because their body is actively fighting something. So instead of attacking their own body, it's actually attacking a, a parasite. 
Um, and so he, because he had learned about this and he had exhausted all of his other resources, he said, well, maybe I'll try hookworms. And so he went around to all these places in like the Amazon and he, he did this traveling through to where all these little communities and said, I need to know where you guys use the bathroom at. And I want to go there. And he would just walk barefoot all through the areas. And then he eventually started taking stool samples of his own, um, doing some sort of cleansing on it and then uh, selling the capsules of hookworms. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people get result from that. That's crazy. So after you cleanse yourself, you might want to uh, spice your diet back up. Oh yeah, the uh, the tapeworm or two, Bill. Spice it up with worms, dude. I had the weirdest dream last night. So I don't dream that much. I don't talk about dreams very often on the show because I'm not an expert at uh, interpreting them or whatever. But uh, this morning was interesting because I woke up right out of. I'm pretty sure it was REM sleep because I my my leg uh, kicked out. And I kicked the side of my bed with my big toe. So that's how I woke woke myself up out of my dream. But uh, I don't know. I was in a, I was in a kerfuffle uh, of some sorts using my, my arms. And then I decided to change the tactics and kick out my leg. And I did it in, in, in real, you know, in my physical body. And it, it actually you know, hurt and woke me up. But before that... I was, uh, somebody was trying to give me this weird, like, big eel worm looking thing. It had gills and just looked really slimy. And they were saying, like, yeah, you need to put this back inside of you. And it was, I wouldn't do it, right? It, it was kind of creepy. Have you been watching Stargate? No, I haven't, actually. Do they have worm? Paris. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was it was exactly. Spoiler alert: <laughs> you find it out very early on in the movies and series. Well, uh, speaking of, I guess we're on the health train. I do have this article next from Daily Mail about speaking of silver linings. Right, there is this good good news: FDA approves. $12,000 cancer treatment that uses sound waves to disintegrate tumors as a painless alternative to radiation and chemotherapy. That is phenomenal. Yes, it is. I read the article obviously before, and I believe this is only applying to liver tumors or kidneys. We'll find out here in a second. I'm but guessing liver. I think it is liver. But yeah, the future i believe of medical uh, instruments and and procedures will be sound and light based therapies so this is uh just the tip of the iceberg i guarantee you this is uh, not new technology we're just getting the trickle downs that they let the uh, no sound and frequency is so often used whether you have a uh... A device burning and cutting with a laser using frequency or light therapy, red therapy, UV therapies, you know, uh, as disinfectant, uh, sound therapies, ultrasound. They do the same thing with kidney stones. But if we talk about the ancients using sound. Mm -hmm. right. They only had uh, stones and sticks. 
thing to do stuff with. But yeah, so this is a a medical device. It's a machine. It uses histotripsy, a technique that uses sound waves to break down tumors, and has been approved to treat liver tumors by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Uh, it uses targeted sound waves, like an ultrasound machine, to form micro bubbles within the tumor. The forces generated as the bubbles expand and collapse rapidly cause the cancerous mass to break apart, destroying tumor cells and leaving the debris to be eliminated by the immune system. Uh, just a note on the immune system. There is no specific system within the body that is called the immune system. You cannot point to any part of the body and say this is this is where the immune system lives and functions. The immune system is like a it's a con it's a conglomerate of your microbiome and and several other factors, right? And uh, so yeah, just an interesting side note there. Uh, the approval of the treatment means that patients are able to get uh, treatment for liver cancer without the side effects of radiation or chemotherapy. Uh, it's a Minneapolis-based Histosonics company, founded in 2009, pioneered the, the treatment. Histosonics can now sell its histotripsy delivery platform named Edison to hospitals and doctors to use in patients. It costs $12,500 per procedure. wonder how much it costs to make this machine. Uh, the procedure is performed under general anesthesia and is done alongside a live ultrasound of the liver to enable a radiologist to locate and blast the tumor. Yeah, it's probably very precise. I know they make machines like this that do um, like key, like radio, like chemotherapy type thing where it's blasting through radiation. But they're doing it like if you think of it being shot through like a laser precision point and they rotate around and you overlap that. So your whole body gets a light dose, but then one small spot that you've mapped with the crossovers gets a high dose and it just kills everything within that tumor. But with this, you essentially do the mechanical destruction, but with no radiation. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah. It, it does say that it's a bedside machine, so it can't be too large. But uh, it uses a robotic arm and moves it into position over the patient's abdomen like a traditional ultrasound. And the doctor locks it above the target tumor. And the rest of the procedure is fully automated. Attached to the end of the robotic arm is a transducer, a device that converts electrical energy into ultrasound energy. The machine software then calculates how much energy is needed to create a powerful enough bubble cloud, a bubble cloud, to kill the tumor with focused ultrasound waves converging at a focal point in, in its center. Once the debris of the tumor has been liquefied, it will naturally be, naturally, it will be naturally absorbed in the body before it is passed out as waste. Uh, the debris creates the debris created becomes uh, becomes scar tissue interestingly enough although it's considered a safe treatment there is a small risk nearby blood vessels could be damaged by the heat 
Uh, the duration of the procedure depends on the number and size of tumors, but it can take as little as seven minutes. Uh, so yeah, some good news coming down the pipe for liver cancer patients. It's been it's only been approved for use in liver care in in liver cancer patients, and its limited availability and high price tag may make doctors prescribing it to patients prohibitive. So, not too not too happy about the price tag there, but a step in the right direction nonetheless, I'd say. Um, they do call it a breakthrough in treatment, and, but it's not suitable for every liver cancer patient. It's determined on a case-to-case basis, as with all other health-based decisions, right? Um, interestingly, it does say that liver cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the U.S. Last time I looked, I think that doctors were the third leading cause of overall death. <laughs> so. Well, you know, if they wouldn't practice so much. Practice. Right. Uh, so the the average five-year survival rate for all stages is uh, 20%, according to the American Cancer Society. So I found something interesting, Bill. When you were mentioning this about sound and they mentioned ultrasound, I had heard people in the past talk that ultrasounds can be dangerous to babies, that there are associated risks. And so I decided to jump in and ask ChatGPT what the risks are for ultrasound on a baby. And it's interesting because it can, that there is a theoretical, um, have a, a theoretical adverse on developing tissue um, with exposure duration being high. Um, a theoretical possible increase in temperature, although they say that's not likely with diagnostic. But here's where it gets interesting. Cavitation. There's a theoretical risk of cavitation, the formation of tiny gas bubbles in the tissue with high-intensity ultrasound. But this is not a concern in diagnostic ultrasound. And then they go on to say that overuse, excessive and unnecessary ultrasounds should be avoided while there isn't a known immediate risk, which seems to me that there's a known immediate risk. And I wonder if any of this research stemmed from, you know, uh, you know, maybe there being some known effects from ultrasounds being administered incorrectly and, you know, going, hey, you know, let's turn this into a win. Right. That makes sense to me. Tracks. That tracks. Let's see, what else do we have as far as headlines go? Uh, we do have some space space weather. Let's do some space weather news. Um, I, this isn't anything uh, super pertinent. I mean, I mean, uh, timely, I should say. It's more of a uh, a lesson about the sun and uh, how it behaves over over time, and it uh, turns out that it swaps poles quite often. And I don't know if I knew this before, but this was a nice uh, refresher if I didn't, or if I did, but even if I didn't, this, I still felt like I learned something new here. This is from Newsweek. Uh, the sun is about to send Earth on an electric roller coaster. It says the sun's magnetic poles are about to disappear as they swap polarity, which may lead to a number of geomagnetic storms hitting Earth, 
in their wake. The sun's magnetic poles swap positions every 11 years as the sun approaches or so as the sun approaches its most active period, solar maximum, with the sun having no magnetic poles and a messy chaotic magnetic field during the interim. The amount of time that the sun is left with no poles varies from solar cycle to cycle. The swapping of the poles is extended or is uh, is expected to send increasingly weird space weather our way, in part because a section of the sun's magnetic magnetosphere called the heliospheric current sheet, a ring of electricity blown out from the sun by the solar wind, becoming heavier than usual. The solar polar reversal is a normal phenomena that occurs every 11 years. We call this the solar cycle. The reversal happens when the poles themselves are about to disappear, but it's actually when the sun is most active. If you could see the sun's magnetic field right now, it would be a large tangled web of magnetic field lines without a coherent shape. In half a cycle's time, 5.5 years from now, the poles will be well-defined and look more like a bar magnet. What this means right now, as we are solar maximum with a huge mess of a solar magnetic fields, is we get more solar flares and coronal mass ejections. These can hit Earth and cause geomagnetic storms in our atmosphere, which last year caused the loss of about 50 Starlink satellites. Uh, geomagnetic storms are a result of solar flares or coronal mass ejections of solar plasma being flung out from the sun, which usually occurs as at sunspots or other areas of high magnetic energy. The sun's magnetic field behaves a little bit like lots of elastic bands, which during the rising phase of the solar cycle, which we are now in, become increasingly tangled up and taut. At some point, all that stored potential energy has to be released, which is the chaotic period we call solar maximum. Once the stored energy is released, the field returns to a less tangled and simpler state, only to begin the cycle again. It's essentially a cyclical process of a buildup and release of energy, kind of like the, the moon, right? Uh, the sun's magnetic field threads through the visible surface of the sun, the photosphere, and at its densest can result in the appearance of dark regions called sunspots. At solar maximum, there are many sunspots. At solar minimum, there are few or none at all. The next solar maximum was forecast for 2025, but the sun has been ahead of schedule this cycle, sending out higher numbers of flares and CMEs that would usually be expected two years before the maximum. And we're five and a half years out. Right, isn't that what it said? Uh, during solar minimum, the sun has a clear bipolar magnetic field with vast and relatively undisturbed solar wind. At solar maximum, the whole solar magnetic field becomes quite chaotic with a highly variable solar wind flow and large amounts of solar flares and CMEs. 
the sun's pole swapping is a sign that the maximum is approaching. Currently, its south magnetic pole has almost completely vanished, with the north pole just hanging on. This is expected to send ripples into the heliospheric current sheet, which will have an impact on Earth's space weather. The heliospheric current sheet is like a projection of the solar magnetic field out into space. When at solar minimum, we get a somewhat predictable current sheet, as the poles are well-defined, so it's not very variable when it hits Earth. Think of it like ripples of a magnetic field hitting Earth-like waves on a beach. Hitting Earth-like waves on a beach, you get peaks and troughs. At maximum, you still get the waves, but there is more structure and variability. The differences in the current sheet between maximum and minimum don't have a huge impact on the Earth compared to flares, but it does affect motions of the upper atmosphere. Despite its scary-sounding effects, the real-life impacts on Earth are likely to be minimal, except for the likely, unlikely case of an extremely powerful flare, or CME, heading our way. Most space weather impacts for humans are technological. Solar storms can disrupt satellite operations and occasionally damage ground-based infrastructure. I should emphasize, however, that human civilization has witnessed and cataloged 25 solar cycles, if one includes the present one, six of which occurred in the space age. So we should be okay. I don't believe that for a second. Really? Okay, so we had the Carrington event in 1859. We think that we're overdue for those, right? And that, if we were to get it today, could wipe out 80% or more of our entire infrastructure planet-wide. If you lose the machines that build the machines, you have to rebuild those too. Imagine every single electrical grid going down, houses catching fire, fences catching fire, long pieces of wire being incredibly highly um, just inductive, all of your chips, um, anything that's not hardened, which is basically everything um, around you getting blown up and destroyed. I mean, in a hurricane alone, just the transformers, we only keep in Florida, um, or I shouldn't say Florida, FPL, uh, only keeps like 150 extra spare at any time. It's like you would be done. Then your vehicles don't work. Your water systems don't work. Your power lines are down. Um, and that's just from 1859. Um, but I would say it gets scarier because we're on the precipice of at least three major cycles coming together. And, and that's how cycles work. They overlap, you know, like waves in a pool. You know, there's there's just this repetitive pattern. Um, but the um, the grand minimum or what they call like, I guess, uh, what is it? The Marauder minimum, I think, um, or the Dalton minimum is a grand cycle. Um, it happened last time, 1645 to 1715, approximately, in which there was just no sunspot activity, incredibly reduced sun activity. If you want to talk about climate change, this is the direct tie. The Earth became significantly colder. It's what they call like uh, smaller mini ice ages. Uh, they're predicting that that is due in the next cycle or the following. Um so you're looking at, you know, 11-year cycles top to bottom uh, for that time period. 
in addition, the really scary thing is, although they may be right that these don't usually impact us, we're also seeing a huge increase in impacts from solar events that in the past we haven't had as big geomagnetic, geomagnetic storms, uh, proton storms, uh, different events like that are impacting us significantly greater. Um, and you can tie that to the reduction in shifting of the Earth's magnetic field. And that's terrifying because there's also a direct tie to the cataclysms of, you know, approximately 12,600 years that are also tied to when there is a magnetic reversal on the planet. Um, and then, of course, you know, with all of that, aside from having no magnetic field, you get the entire, uh, all the dosing of radiation from space is going to come in and just irradiate Earth until that uh, that pole is flipped back, and the only place that is not going to just be um, irradiated is going to be uh, deep underground. Where the ant people took the Hopi. Yeah. Well, that was the Hopi. I don't think so. The amount of underground living facilities uh, holding tens of thousands of people, or not having them in them, but the capability of the amount of underground structures all across the world. Um, very, very old. Uh, it just makes you wonder if uh, these things weren't utilized in ages past. And, you know, maybe uh, they paid more attention to some of their ancient knowledge, ancient, ancient uh, calendars and cycles, and were able to uh, prepare. Meanwhile, we're writing articles about how safe it is and just, you know, Go buy an Xbox. It's uh, I like that you brought up that the Maunder, I believe, M-A-U-N-D or minimum. minimum. Yeah, I want to say Marauder, but that's just a StarCraft thing. Because <laughs> there was a another article that I actually take I took off my, my show prep list because, I, I don't know, I just thought it wasn't interesting, but it has to do with the strange anomaly in Sun's solar cycle uh, being discovered in centuries-old texts from Korea. And so I guess we will uh, I'll just go through this relatively quickly to get the main points. But uh, let's see. The Maunder Minimum, sometimes referred to as the Grand Solar Minimum, was a period of greatly reduced solar activity between 1645 and 1715, when sunspots effectively uh, disappeared. According to Scott McIntosh, who was a solar physicist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado. Uh, this is an article from Live Science, by the way. And uh, he says, during this time, the sun's output was so low that average global temperatures also dropped in what scientists have dubbed a mini ice age. So it was also likely linked to high levels of volcanic eruptions at the time. Sunspot records paint a general picture of the Maunder Minimum, which is named after the English, English, English astronomer Edward Walter Maunder. But there's still much about the period that scientists don't know. So in this new study published on October 3rd in the journal AGU Advances, Researchers analyzed historic oral, oral, auroral records from Korea, 
Korea and found that solar cycles during the Maunder minimum were only eight years long on average, three years shorter than modern cycles, which we just learned are supposed to be 11 years, right? The Aurora records were part of three separate books or chronicles, hey, uh, written on behalf of Korean kings that contained detailed daily reports of royal business, state affairs, weather, and astrological uh, phenomena that occurred within the Korean peninsula between 918 and uh, 1910, according to the 2021 study that first described them. The, astronomic, the astronomical sections of the chronicles frequently speak of red vapors or vapors like firelight. The researchers believe these descriptions refer to the West Pacific Anomaly, an area above Korea that produces regular red auras, despite being far from the magnetic poles. Like other auroras, the WPA occurs when solar radiation collides with Earth's magnetic field. But unlike other auroras at the time, these light shows... I'm reading this off my phone, so it's getting... Move my screen because of pop-ups. Uh, these light shows... Here we go. But unlike other auroras at the time, these light shows persisted despite a decrease in solar activity because the Earth's magnetic field is thinner in this region, which makes them a great proxy for solar cycle progression. Uh, the dates when these auroras occurred show that solar radiation from the sun followed an eight-year cycle. Scientists don't know what causes long-term solar cycle trends, like the Maunder Minimum. Macintosh said, there are many things that could influence solar activity over such long periods. Sorry. I guess I'm caught in my throat. Yeah, and there's also a direct correlation to, oh, excuse me, I'm coughing too, um, to the planets. You can uh, draw sunspots. Um, correlations of sun, sunspots on the sun in relation to where the planets are in the solar system at any given time. At least statistical correlations. Speaking of swapping, uh, switching magnetic poles and such, I did uh, just real quickly wanted to float this idea past you, Adam. I had recently listened to a Crow Triple Seven podcast, and he had guest on talking about the symbolic, uh, um, symbolic nature of of symbols, symbol symbolic studies, right? And his premise, his theory, what he's uncovered or, or come to conclude is that the, uh, the pole, like the north star is essentially what the 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 originating originating uh, context for the myths that religions were 
were uh, sprung out of, right? So if, if we go backwards in time, uh, currently I would say that we're in this uh, kind of a a sun sun worshiping uh, uh, phase, right? And then if we if we take a step back from where we are currently, the before that would have been a lunar kind of like a lunar based religion type thing, and then before that would have been you know older than so pre-lunar societies right would would have uh, some kind of system based around uh, the the pole star and the pole so it would be a pole based religion so what uh, what do you think about about that progression from going from you know like the north star which is fixed right it's the center of heaven to to something like the moon and then now we're We've got a lot of sun energy coming in with, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and Sol Invictus and and, and Mithraism and all this, all these, uh, you know, other religions that you get into when you start comparing stuff, right? Is that the does that kind of make sense to you, Adam? Exactly. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. No, it it reminds me of like um, the astrological ages that you know uh, human beings over you know thousands and thousands of years. You know, you go through, you know, all the, you know, Libra, Virgo, Leo, Cancer. You just go through each one. And we have different ages. So, you know, it's like you've probably heard, you know, the age of Aquarius. You know, it's just these um, these ideas that there are certain time frames. But if you think about that on a long enough cycle um, in which you could go through ages and progression, it can tie into religion. We know that there's effects of magnetism on how people act. We know that there's effects on uh, human physiology, both in, uh, I call them like psychotic events or people having um, uh, uh, issues, neurologic issues, migraines, seizures, heart attacks directly related to activity at the sun. It's not crazy for me to think that there could also be larger things to build i mean the basis of humanity of who we are the way that we act the way that we interact with the world on incredibly large cycles that have cataclysm and cyclicalness and ages and then that can tie into religion um you know the idea that you know um that fact um will be considered to you know be a lie um you know, that, uh, you know, truth tellers will be seen as liars and the liars will be seen as, you know, the truth tellers, you know, the idea that there's just war and chaos and God would have to smite you. Well, maybe it also has to do with on this cycle, you know, human beings are more susceptible to different things. And then, of course, it makes sense that all of that would be directly tied through. And if that's tied through to cycle, to the procession, to the location, the rotation of the earth, planets the north star is where we spin i it is it is the first point that all else is referenced from so yeah i can absolutely see that as being a a crux uh, a, a keystone or integral part of a a deep religion which is based on just reality Yeah, it's really sparked me to uh, start looking into... If we live to be 1,500 years old, 
were 20,000 years old, maybe we would be able to see these things. And maybe if we do have another cataclysm and we can retain the ability to record information, we wouldn't have this because we're looking back at stone tablets and things, but if we had the ability to recall the information on hand from today all the way through to another 12,000 years, that would be something spectacular. Yeah, it's really making me take a, uh, rekindled my interest in, you know, the Northern uh, mythos with, with all those, the, the pantheon of, you know, Woden and Frey and Freya and all those, that story, you know, those stories. Super interesting. We were listening to uh, something today, actually. They were talking about Iceland, right? And how this was a you know, very, very old uh, island. And during, you know, during uh, Egypt, Egypt had uh, trade. They were, they were bringing in copper from uh, the Celts, I believe. It was the Celts who were, who were all over the place, right? And uh, one of the stops in during uh, commerce, as, as people are searching for things to trade up north or to give to the Europeans for money, right? They're hunting things like walrus and getting uh, ivory from tusks. And, and uh, so there, there's, there's evidence of, you know, a civilization, a very, very high civilization being, having existed there uh, that traded with with Egypt and and um, all the way to the to the Americas, right? They they found uh, cannabis uh, seeds in in Iceland from probably from the Americas, right? And yeah, it's just amazing how like uh, did you know that the U.S. government actually sent uh, the U.S. government, right? We sent officially sent uh, Iceland some statue of. Erickson, I believe, was was his name. Pretty much a saying that we we acknowledge that you guys found America first and not not Columbus. So that's just a little interesting tidbit of of energy uh, energy history. Looking at the word energy, I think I did know that. Yeah, isn't that isn't that crazy? Is, yeah, my favorite thing about thing. the hubris of everybody, though, it's like who discovered America? It's like, well, I don't know. How about the people that you met when you arrived? Yeah. Oh, and they they were talking about the uh, the, the genetics of Icelandic mm -hmm. people uh, have Native American blood from uh, the mitochondrial from from the mother. Like the it makes sense to me when you back. yeah um, when you look at the amount of evidence of travel in ancient past that even during like the Bronze Age, I think it's Nova Scotia that they found, um, you know, evidence of these people who are known for mining copper, mining massive amounts of copper and transporting it across the world. Um, you have, you know, the Chinese with their huge fleets. In America, you have, you know, Roman artifacts and things from England found over here way before anybody was ever supposed to have noticed um, that we, we existed here. Chinese artifacts, different things. And it's like, well, the truth is, you know, a lot of people would travel and there was a lot of technology for being able to do that. You know, um, you know, you know, during, during certain eras, we know it certainly wasn't like, wasn't like a jet plane, but boats existed. Boats are a very, very old technology. 
Anybody who sees a curled leaf fall onto the water knows how to make a boat. Yep, and they used that North Star to get around. Yeah, yeah, people don't think about it, but, you know, we can't see the sky. It used to be at night, on a moonless night, everybody could see the the Milky Way galaxy. You could see clouds of dust out there in the galaxy now you're lucky if you see a satellite speaking of seeing things like up in the arctic circle right the sun that it stays up there for like three months right during the summer it doesn't set and i believe this was one of the reasons why the phrase land of the midnight sun uh, yep where that got its you know origination from because it's during the summer it's just it never sets so i've it, heard it's it, incredibly it's, disorienting but can you imagine like i've i've, I've, I've imagined you know living in alaska because i know they have very long periods yeah. of darkness like it's yeah it's nuts talk about messing up your circadian rhythm or would you just adapt and that would be normal at that point i don't know do they have daylight savings time in alaska probably right well, I think everybody can adapt, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the best for you. Either. Right. Yeah. Just because I can survive sitting in the water doesn't mean I'm not going to have wrinkled skin forever. Right. Okay. So, last. Yeah, I think this is going to be our last headline, and we're going to uh, continue with the the tech the tech theme. This is an article from SciTech Daily. And when I when I read this, this made me think of the um, new technology that the Starship Voyager, captained by uh, uh, Janeway, uh, what was her first name, Catherine, Catherine. Janeway. yes, uh, they have this uh, this new upgraded uh, technology for their new ship called Gel Packs, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, this is this is totally we have gel packs now. Essentially, I just cool finished thing. the series yesterday, the Voyager one. Yep, that's awesome. I went yeah, I watched that not not too long ago. Went through the whole thing. Yeah, the first three seasons are basically garbage, and then the rest is amazing. Yeah, is is pretty cool. So uh, you can watch Star Trek for free on Pluto TV. For, for anybody oh, sweet. that wants to do those two channels that they have dedicated to Star Trek 24-7. So shout out to Pluto TV. Anyway, not a sponsor. A novel, the article says, a novel mic- ultra-micro supercapacitor showcases superior energy storage in a potential revolution in device power sources. Researchers at the Department of Instrumentation and Applied Physics, Indian Institute of Science, have des- have designed a novel ultra-micro supercapacitor, a tiny device capable of storing an enormous amount of electric electric charge. It is also much smaller and more c- compact than existing supercapacitors, and can potentially be used in many devices, ranging from streetlights to consumer electronics, electric cars and medical devices. Most of these devices are currently powered by batteries, 
However, over time, these batteries lose their ability to store charge and therefore have a limited shelf life. Capacitors, on the other hand, can store electric charge for much longer by virtue of their design. For example, a capacitor operating at 5 volts will continue to operate at the same voltage even after a decade. But unlike batteries, they cannot discharge energy constantly. A power to mobile phone, for example, to power a mobile phone. The advantages of supercapacitors. Supercapacitors, on the other hand, combine the best of both batteries and capacitors. They can store as well as release large amounts of energy and are therefore highly sought after for next generation electronic devices. In the recent study published in ACS Energy Lectures, the researchers fabricated their supercapacitor using field effect transistors, or FETs, as the charge collectors, instead of the metallic electrodes that are used in existing capacitors. Using FET as an electrode for supercapacitors is something new for, for tuning charge in a capacitor, says a professor. Uh, innovations in capacitor design. Current capacitors basically use metal oxide-based electrodes, but they are limited by poor electron mobility. Therefore, um, this team decided to build hybrid FETs consisting of alternating few atom, few atom thick layers of molybdenum disulfide, MOS2, and graphene to increase electron mobility, which were then connected to gold contacts. A solid gel electrolyte is used between the two FET electrodes to build a solid-state supercapacitor. The entire structure is built on a silicon dioxide slash silicon base. The design is the crucial part because you are integrating two systems. The two systems are the two FET electrodes and the gel electrolyte, an ionic medium, which have different charge capacities. Um, one of the team people adds that it was challenging to fabricate the device to get all the ideal characteristics of the transistor right. Since these supercapacitors are very small, they cannot be seen without a microscope, and the fabrication process requires high precision and hand-eye coordination. Once the supercapacitor was fabricated, researchers measured the electrochemical capacitance or charge holding capacity of the device by applying various voltages. They found that under certain conditions, the capacitance increased by 3000%. By contrast, a capacitor containing just MOS2 without graphene showed only an 18% enhancement in capacitance under the same conditions. In the future, researchers are planning to explore if replacing MOS2 with other materials can increase the capacitance of their supercapacitor even more. 
they add that their supercapacitor is fully functional and can be deployed in energy storage devices like electric car batteries or any miniaturized system by on-chip integration. They are also planning to apply for a patent. And that's that article. Another amazing um, use for graphene. Such such a, a game changer in in the world that we're moving into. <clears throat> Are you familiar with capacitors, Bill? Um, not not totally. Just uh, kind of what we just read. Here's what's amazing. It's super simple, and you can look up how to make your own capacitors. It's really easy to do using like glass jars. If you've ever like run your socks across uh, a carpet and you get a static charge that's built up, you're in a sense a capacitor. You're holding a static, an energy charge. And that's all that it is. It's, you know, essentially you've got the inside of a capacitor, which is usually an electrolyte with some sort of just like membrane that it's soaked into. And it's in between layers of metal. And so it builds up this high static charge that can be held in that location for an extended period of time. Uh, what's interesting about this is what they're doing. It seems that it's allowing them to discharge at different rates, which normally a capacitor is like, everything goes at once and it pops then you need to have other circuitry to um to deal with that but it is super stinking cool yeah so because so. graphene's just graphite but you know formed in a certain way it's carbon yeah it's better better use for it than putting it in the vaccines right which aren't i should say the inoculations I remember Derek got a hold of some graphene and had was playing with it under a microscope. Yeah, wow. you can. I'd be careful with it only because with nanoparticles, they can bypass the blood-brain barrier. And, um, you know, who knows what that is actually doing to you. That's why some people say to avoid, uh, like, food additives like uh, titanium oxide because it can do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, titanium oxide. I saw that in one of my recent recently saw that in something I used to eat all the time. Was what it was a snack, like a treat I would have. Maybe maybe it was uh, anything that's white. Look at your candy canes. Look at your uh, your glazed uh, products. Anything that's got like an icing on it. All of your products that are made of plastic, the pure whites are all titanium dioxide. The paints in your houses. Um, it is a huge commodity um, out there. The amount of mining that is done for that is insane. I remember what it was in. It was in a uh, frozen dessert, like a oh, ice cream. Sounds about right. It's also in a lot of gums. Any anything that's got that white look to it. Yeah, it's it's crazy because this. I believe this frozen dessert thing was from a health food store. <laughs> I love it. It's like you're eating paint chips, but yeah. you know, it's like it's, I'm, they market, I'm, they market. I'm eating whole paint. The marketing that that uh, they make they make you they trick you into thinking that it's good for you. Well, I dare anybody to take their favorite uh, cheating product and uh, Google what the actual ingredients are made from. Yeah, it's like, oh wait, that's a petroleum-based dye. It's also used in clothing. Hmm, I'm sure I was meant to digest that. <laughs> Or wear that for that matter. Like, it'd be 
be kind. I do of worry about that. I, 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 I worry about the, the dyes that are in my clothing because I know some people. Angie has a friend who cannot wear black clothing because he has severe allergic reactions to it. And I'm like, well, I like neon colors. I love this red shirt. Like, you know, does that mean my green shirt actually has arsenic in it? Right. Neon's a good, that's a good question because I have been not, not really doing a deep dive into looking at dyes, but the topic has been floating around my household in regards to dyeing some articles of clothing like indigo and such. But like, what does, uh, yeah, neon, that's got to be something special because you can't just find that out there. Like, uh, like, like they, they use, you know, indigos from a plant, right? You can go out and harvest that. I don't know, harvesting neon stuff. Like they also used malachite for uh, green dye, which is super, super toxic for you. So, Hey, all the old, you've heard of like uranium glass, you know, that glowing green. That's because it makes that beautiful glowing green. And there, there's a lot of old, old um, drinkware and stuff that is made from it. So we should stay away from old green glass bottles. Yeah, yeah. Well, like any old products, you know, a lot of leads, a lot, all the good stuff, you know. <laughs> Well, we did. We we've got a lot of. We did cover a lot of good, good stuff. We got new uh, cancer treatment. We've got uh, Voyager gel packs hitting the the market. And uh, yeah, it was a good uh, good silver segment. It's it's. I think that uh, I've structured this to to be the the headlines themselves are are the silver linings, right? It's not. Uh, we don't have to sit here and dissect uh, news stories about, you know, horrible topics and then pick out the silver linings from that. We can just go right to them, which is which is more more in line with our expansion theme in the silver segment. So moving on to the the sword segment, and this this, this I guess this will this will just be a little bit of a shorter. Uh, episode than our normal two hours. I try to hit uh, hit ninety minutes. So make sure to uh, to subscribe if you haven't and get your guaranteed at least ninety minutes worth of worth of Chrononaut Chronicles a week because we do try to do this on a weekly basis. Um, we are infusing you with the good frequencies. We are. This is the good spell. This is our good stuff. So we have uh, just a very short, short reading from uh, Mr. Neville Goddard. And we sit down for this because it's a little bit easier to hold the book. And uh, speaking of books, um, I'm, I don't know, I don't think we have read from the power of awareness in 1952 at least not this chapter at least i hope not this isn't this isn't a repeat but i was thinking that we could probably just just uh cover this whole book because flipping through the chapters they're pretty pretty short and we could probably cover you know more than one per per episode so we might be we might be del delving 
that might be our next project to tackle in the, the silver or the sword segment but with that being said this is only the the second chapter of of this book and the the first one is uh, dealing with uh, i am it's uh, being a, a feeling of permanent awareness right so this chapter is called consciousness and he says or he writes it is only by a change of consciousness by actually changing your concept of yourself that you can build more stately mansions in quotes the manifestations of higher and higher concepts by manifesting is meant experiencing the results of these concepts in your world it is of vital importance to understand clearly just what consciousness is the reason lies in the fact that consciousness is the one and only reality it is the first and only cause substance of the phenomena of life nothing has existence for man save through the consciousness he has of it therefore it is to consciousness you must turn for it is the only foundation on which the phenomena of life can be explained if we accept the idea of a first cause it would follow that the evolution of that cause could never result in anything foreign to itself that is if the first cause substance is light all its evolutions fruits and manifestations would remain light the first cause substance being consciousness all of its evolutions fruits and phenomena must remain consciousness all that could be observed would be a higher or lower form or variation of the same thing in other words if your consciousness is the only reality it must also be the only substance consequently what appears to you as circumstances conditions and even material objects is really only the product of your own consciousness nature then as a thing or a complex of things external to your mind must be rejected you and your environment cannot be regarded as existing separately you and your world are one therefore you must turn from the objective appearance of things to the subjective center of things your consciousness if you are if if you truly desire to know the cause of the phenomena of life and how to use this knowledge to realize your fondest dreams in the midst of apparent contradictions antagonisms and contrasts of your life there is only one principle at work only your consciousness operating difference does not consist in variety of substance but in variety of arrangement of the same cause substance your consciousness the world moves with motiveless necessity by this is meant that it has no motive of its own but is under the necessity of manifesting your concept the arrangement of your mind and your mind is always arranged 
in the image of all you believe and consent to as true. The rich man, poor man, beggar man, or thief are not different minds, but different arrangements of the same mind, in the same sense that a piece of steel, when magnetized, differs not in substance from its demagnetized state, but in the arrangement and order of its molecules. A single electron, revolving in a specified orbit, constitutes the unit of magnetism. When a piece of steel or anything else is demagnetized, the revolving electrons have not stopped. Therefore, the magnetism has not gone out of existence. There is only a rearrangement of the particles so that they can produce no outside or perceptible effect. When particles are arranged at random, mixed up in all directions, the substance is said to be demagnetized. But when particles are marshaled in ranks so that their number so that a number of them face in one direction, the substance is a magnet. Magnetism is not generated, it is displayed. Health, wealth, beauty, and genius are not created, they are only manifested by the arrangement of your mind, that is, by your concept of yourself, and your concept of yourself is all that you have. I'm sorry. Let me, let me, let me start that again. Health, wealth, and beauty, health, wealth, beauty, and genius are not created, they are only manifested by the arrangement of your mind, that is, by your concept of yourself, and your concept of yourself is all that you accept and consent to as true. What you consent to can only be discovered by an uncritical observation of your reactions to life. Your reactions reveal where you live psychologically, and where you live psychologically determines how you live here in the outer visible world. The importance of this in your daily life should be immediately apparent. The basic nature of the primal cause is consciousness. Therefore, the ultimate substance of all things is consciousness. And that is, that's the end of the chapter. Super short, just not even a page. But very potent nonetheless, in my opinion, anyhow. What, uh, what do you think, Adam? Any first impressions on, on hearing this? Does it sound familiar? I hope I didn't read this before. I don't think he did. Good. Do not think he did. Sounds fresh to me. Yeah, that sounds like it tracks, I think. Talking about magnetism. You were just talking about flipping poles. Flipping poles. Poles, sun's poles. So yeah, it's always good to hear from our friend Neville. And I was thinking today about a uh, past guest of uh, Thirteen Questions by the name of Provo Kid. So shout out to Provo Kid. He, uh, his book uh, suggestion or the, his answer to the book question was. Uh, something by Neville Goddard. I can't forget. I don't, I don't remember what exactly book he mentioned, but uh, he basically inspired me to 
to really delve in and see what Neville is all about, and not and then not to put uh, you know words in his mouth. But I do believe that he said that that's pretty much the uh, he discovered Neville and then uh, you know stopped stopped uh, reading because Neville pretty much nailed nailed the whole mystery thing on the head. I think anyway. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll get him on the show. Maybe I'll reach out and see if he wants to come hang out and chat with us for a few minutes. Um, yeah, I was just trying to see what the next week's scalar energy session is going to be. Uh, I do like to, this is something I try to remember to remind myself and, and all of you to do on a weekly basis because it is a free uh, service that Derek offers through mysticalwares.com and uh, scalar energy is is something that uh, I won't say is was developed by Royal Raymond Rife but uh, he did certainly uh, manifest it right <laughs> and uh, you can learn all about that on uh, mysticalwares.com uh, uh, their scalar energy page so just go to mysticalwares scroll down look for scalar energy all that page is an explanation, and at the bottom there will be a sign-up link. You click that, and you just follow the checkout process like you're buying something, but there's nothing in your cart. It's it's free, so this is just to put your to get your name on the list, right? So uh, this this week on Friday, you have until Friday to sign up. It is going to be digestion and gut health, and you can find the list of frequencies. I believe that he has a link to it on his website and the uh, the targeted areas uh, each week uh, are chosen based off of group feedback. So uh, definitely get in there and uh, see what it's all about. Uh, you got nothing to lose. It's free, right? Speaking of free, uh, I am grateful that uh, Derek is sponsoring the show because I don't have to go out and and ask you guys for money, but uh, I will ask that you guys uh, do do share the show still, uh, rate the show on whatever platform that you're using, and uh, help spread the love whatever way you can. Time, talent, treasure. If you enjoy what you're listening to, you want it to grow, man. Put some water on that garden. Give us a little bit of fertilizer. Uh, help us out. Exactly. So, until next time, Chrononauts, Arpe Dion. Sure.